So today we're going to look at Christ's ascension. You say, well, what is Christ's ascension? What is the ascension? Let's make sure, I want to define some terms here, make sure we're talking about the same thing together. Well, after Jesus finished his earthly mission, which according to Matthew one twenty one was to come and save his people from their sins, he ascended into heaven after 40 days of post-resurrection appearances and and had some ministry during that time. And then Christ returned to heaven in his glorified body. The Bible says he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And from every indication of Scripture, the Bible says that Christ will retain his glorified body forever. You read like Revelation 5. It indicates that. But Christ ascended into heaven as a glorified God-man. He didn't come that way. But now he has two natures in one person forever. The Bible says he's going to return in the same way. And while the incarnation was Jesus' descent from heaven, the ascension is his return to heaven. So there's some key texts of Scripture that uh, talk about the ascension. And I'll put them on the screen here for you, starting in Mark chapter 16, verse 19. Very short verse here, just one verse. But notice what it says. Mark 16, 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The other one is uh, we need to look at is Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 49. Luke 24, verse 49, it says, Behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. Jesus here says, But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Probably the more well-known passage is Acts chapter 1. Certainly more details here for us in Acts chapter 1. Let's start at the very beginning in verse 1, Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed 
by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Three key passages we just read together describing the events of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And as you look at these three passages, there's some basic nature here of Christ's ascension. We need to draw out a few points from these passages, and we can draw from others as well. So what is the nature of the ascension? What's going on here? Here's some key points to to take note of. Number one, that Christ's ascension was a bodily and visible ascension. It was bodily and visible. It was the same Jesus Christ that the disciples had known in life. Uh, the only difference was he, he now had a glorified body. It was a body of flesh and bones. He was able to be touched. Uh, he still had wounds from the crucifixion. He was able to eat and drink and so forth. You say, well, what's the point in all of that? Is that really important? Well, Christ's ascension, you need to understand, was not an hallucination. It wasn't just a vision. Uh, some theologians have even said it was just something spiritual. Well, the biblical account, the record we just read, leaves no doubt that the disciples were not sleeping. They were wide awake. They actually saw Christ's human body rise up and leave this earth. In fact, we read in Luke chapter 24, it said, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So it was clearly a bodily and visible ascension. Number two, Christ passed through the heavens, the Bible says. For example, in Hebrews 4, verse 14, it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice it says there, Christ passed through all the heavens and up to the highest heaven where He is now higher than all heavens. And this means that He overcame all of those evil principalities and powers that Ephesians 6 talks about that that now inhabit the heavenly realms, uh, these evil powers, no, no doubt, tried their best to stop Jesus Christ from passing through the heavens. Uh, they did not want Jesus to present His finished work before God the Father. And so just as a high priest had to, uh, an Old Testament high priest of Israel, had to pass through the veil into the holy place, So the Bible says Jesus Christ passed through the heavens into the presence of God. 
There's a picture between that Old Testament tabernacle and temple and what Jesus actually fulfilled those, those images and pictures. And number three, Christ ascended to a real place, not an imaginary place. He actually went to a place. Uh, he didn't just suddenly disappear from his disciples. The scriptures make it clear he gradually ascended as they were watching him disappear from their sight. And so the fact that Jesus had a resurrection body that was subject to spatial limitations means that Jesus went somewhere when he actually ascended into heaven. In fact, we read earlier in John 14, verse 2, Jesus said, in my Father's house, John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? A place. That's what the Scripture says. It's a real place. Jesus goes on, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So it's a real place. Jesus exists in a real place. Good news is, so will we one day then. And so my friends, even though we cannot see Christ where, where He is now, it doesn't mean that he's passed into some, uh, you know, state uh, of being that has no location. Uh, it, it doesn't exist within God's creation. Christ ascended to a real place, uh, even though we can't see this real place. Now, again, some people say, "Okay, what's the point? <laughs> Is this really important?" And well, th this truth really answers that question. How do we know that heaven is a place and not just a spiritual state or condition? How do you know it's real? Because sometimes we, we talk about heaven like it's real, and, and I really believe it, and, and an unbeliever sometimes looks at Christians who talk this way and, and they think we're weird. Right, yeah, real. Real heaven? Yeah, come on. That's just a spiritual state or condition. But the answer to that is that Christ's human body is in a real place. He said he was going there. The scripture talks about it. So heaven has to be a real place. I mean, do, do we, do we know where heaven is? Do you know where heaven is? I don't. <laughs> uh, it, it fascinates me to think about that. But the Bible doesn't really give us the location of heaven. We'll know one day. What else do we learn about the nature of Christ's ascension? Well, number four, Christ received glory, honor, and authority. Now, when you see the word power, it's often associated with authority. And so before Jesus died, he actually prayed to the Heavenly Father, and he said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. And that was part of his high priestly prayer in John 17. Was Jesus' prayer answered? Was he glorified? Yeah, absolutely. Christ's prayer was definitely answered here. The Bible says Christ is now in heaven with 
all of the angels, well, that must be an amazing choir, the angels singing praise to Jesus and to God. Well, you say, well, what are they singing then? Well, read the, the, the scene before the throne of God in Revelation. What are they singing? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor and wisdom and blessing. That's what they're singing. Right now, that's what they're singing. So Christ has received glory, honor, and authority. Number five, Christ took His place at the Father's right hand. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, there's lots of scriptures, well, there's several that mention this truth. For example, in Colossians three one, there, it says, If you had been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. So what is meant by that phrase, the right hand of God? Hebrews mentions it. You see it a few times in Scripture. So what does it mean? Is it a definite place? Or is it just simply a figure of speech that the Bible is using to to talk about a place of authority and power? Is it figurative or literal? Well, why can't it be both? It is possible it could be both a literal place, as well as talking about it figuratively. I mean, after all, God God doesn't have hands. He's, John 4 says God is spirit. So I, I tend to think it's both. So from the throne of God, there's Christ. He's exercising His authority and power over all of His creation. And so the fact that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God in heaven by the way, it doesn't mean that he is he, he, he's somehow perpetually fixed in one spot for all eternity. <laughs> Don't get that kind of image in your mind. It's not like you know he's been nailed in that spot and he's never going to move. It doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow inactive, doing nothing like some kind of uh, a couch potato. No, he's not a couch potato. The Bible describes Jesus as standing also at, at God's right hand. The, the Bible in Revelation, as he talks about those churches in chapters 2 and 3, it talks about him walking among the golden lampstands. And so just as a, a human king might sit on his royal throne at the ascension, and then the, the king or a queen doesn't sit there for the rest of, of his or her life. And so it's, I, I imagine that's the way it is with Jesus. So Christ sat at the right hand of God. It was a very dramatic evidence of the completion of His redemptive work. And then He didn't just sit there and do nothing. He was engaged in other activities in heaven as well. In fact, the Bible tells us He's busy. Uh, here's a text, for example, that shows Christ receiving authority over the universe. And in Ephesians 1, verse 20... It says that God worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. Do you see Christ receiving the authority over His universe there? Absolutely. So, He has great power and authority. 
But what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What's the significance of Christ's ascension? Well, there's quite a few things we can actually draw from various parts of Scripture. For example, number one, uh, the ascension of Jesus Christ commences His re-exaltation and enthronement. See, at one point in Jesus' life, you know, He he didn't just come to to be some 2,000 years ago. He is eternal. He's always been. So this is, this is him going back to his, his place of exaltation and enthronement. For example, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians chapter 2, what it says here. <clears throat> Let's start reading in verse 5. Philippians 2.5 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ Exaltation here includes his, his sovereign authority over all creatures in heaven, including angels, including believers. Uh, it includes the earth itself. Anything that's on the earth is subjected to King Jesus. And notice the text even says things under the earth. So clearly, all people, <laughs> that pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? All people, therefore, are going to bow to King Jesus. And by the way, who is under the earth? Well, probably the lost people. Since God's family, the Bible says, is either in heaven itself or on the earth. God's people are not under the earth. And so one day, all, nevertheless, are going to bow before Him. All will confess that He is Lord. He is the Master. And of course, it is possible for people to bow and confess today. And I I hope you've already done that. I trust you have. Uh, It is possible to receive His gift of salvation today, to put your faith in Him, that He is my King, Savior, and Lord. And so to bow before King Jesus now means you receive salvation. You receive His blessing. You receive eternal life. But to bow before Him at the judgment means, for these people under the earth, means they receive His condemnation. I pray that's not you. So why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant? Number two, it ends His self-limitation. Keyword there, self. He purposely limited Himself. 
Okay, We just read verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2 that talks about that. So we ask ourselves then, in what ways did Christ limit himself? Big theological question. <laughs> uh, and I'm certainly not going to dive deep on this one. It's, it is, there's been books written on this. But what I do want you to note, these are temporary things. These, these self-limitations that Christ put on himself are, are, are only temporary, not permanent. So here, here they are. Um, five things I've drawn from various uh, systematic theologies. Number one, that Jesus temporarily denied his divine glory. He temporarily de- uh, denied his divine glory. So in other words, he forsook the worship of, of saints and angels in heaven to, to come to earth to be persecuted by sinful men. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a big stoop. And number two, Jesus emptied himself of independent divine authority. The creator of the universe humbled himself. And so in John 6, Jesus said this. Listen closely. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Self-limitation. Number three, Jesus emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his attributes, although uh, he was still God. He didn't cease to be God. He just limited some of his divine attributes. And so he continued to be God. He's still God. But he chose not to exercise the, the full limits and authority and power of his attributes. Number four, Jesus emptied himself of his eternal riches. Uh, for example, the Bible says, for your sake, he became poor. And then number five, Jesus emptied himself temporarily of his unique relationship with his heavenly father. So to fulfill God's plan of redemption, he had to do this because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and me. He became sin for you and me, even though he was sinless. He took that sin upon himself on our behalf. And so the hymn writer Charles Wesley, I love the hymn. It, it's one of my favorites. And can it be? I don't know what he was thinking. I, I, I hope theologically he was he was thinking right when he wrote I think it's verse 2 of that hymn where he says that Christ emptied himself of all but love. Well, that's how the original, I think, says. Our hymn book has changed that. That Christ emptied himself and came in love. Because it's a a touchy point amongst uh, Christians and has been for quite some time. What exactly did Christ empty himself of in Philippians 2? Did he empty himself of everything except love? No. (laughs) No, of course not. Of course not. But he certainly came in love. He maintained that for sure. And so in his book called Miracles, C.S. Lewis offers some very helpful insights on Christ's incarnation. He says this, quote, it's on the screen. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. 
But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. End quote. Can you just picture some massive bodybuilder lifting kilos and huge tons of weight? Those bodybuilders, they get under. They stoop so they can lift. And that's what Christ does. He stoops so He can lift. Number three, the third significant point that needs to be made about Christ's ascension is this. It confirms God's approval of His redemptive work. For example, here, look look at the Scriptures. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, talking about Jesus here, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint, the Greek word icon, icon, he is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the seat that Christ has taken is the throne of God. What's he doing? He's ruling, he's reigning as the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so this depicts someone who is victorious. Someone who is victorious sits down after their work and surveys the plunder and, and the glorious victory. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he is not a defeated martyr. And so while the primary thrust of sitting down is Christ enthronement, his sitting also implies the work is done. The work he came to accomplish is completed. And the Father accepted that work. The fourth significant thing we need to mention of Christ's ascension is it activates the intercessory ministry of Christ. See, Christ is not done ministering on our behalf. For example, here, according to Romans 8, verse 34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's interceding. He, In other words, He's that go-between, that mediator, which you need between God and you, because we're still sinners We need a go-between, a mediator, an intercessor. So the thought that Jesus is continually praying for us should give us great encouragement. He's always praying for us, and since He's God, He always prays according to the Father's will, so that we know that then His request will be granted. Uh, The theologian Louis Burkhoff had this to say in, in his systematic theology book, quote, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That He is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers and that He prays for our protection against the dangers of which 
we are not even conscious. <laughs> and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. End quote. <laughs> My friends, if you want to know how Jesus prays for you, just read his high priestly prayer, particularly John chapter 17. That's how he prays for you. You can't get anybody better. You won't get any better prayers for you than Jesus' prayers for you. So how is Jesus' ascension significant? Number five, it allows Christ to act as high priest on our behalf. We need a high priest, we have one, and he's in heaven. For example, Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So my friends, do you see the, the, the rich blessings just in that one verse alone? We are so richly blessed because Christ's ministry continues to us. Christ's high priestly ministry has been exercised not in a human-made temple, not in a man-made place. This is a God-made place, the perfect tabernacle of heaven. And so the real high priest is one who will never die, and his name is Jesus. He offered the real sacrifice for your sin. He serves in a real place, a real tabernacle. All those earthly sacrifices and temples, notice it says here, those were only copies. Not the real thing. Not the real thing. And so Jesus is the complete fulfillment of all of those copies. You read, you read the book of Leviticus and you sometimes wonder why do I have to read this and why is this in the Bible? I know. I know how you're thinking because I've thought the same things when I read Leviticus. It's hard work, but it's good work. Lots of gold, gold amongst that huge mine there in Leviticus. As you read it, don't lose sight of Jesus. <laughs> supposed to remind us of Jesus. He's not a copy. Leviticus, that whole Levitical system and the sacrifices are only a copy. But praise God, we have a high priest on our behalf. So why is Christ's ascension significant for you? Number six, it allows the Holy Spirit to come into the world, to indwell believers, and then to convict sinners. See, where is that in the Bible? Well, John chapter 16, verse 7, says, here's Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. As you read that, is it mind-boggling to you to think that it's actually to your advantage that Jesus left planet Earth? That's what he just said. Do you believe what Jesus said? Jesus said it is to your advantage. It is better that he not be here and that he go to heaven. 
How can that possibly be? The reason, he says in this text, is we get the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? Well, Jesus says he's doing at least three things here. Number one, he's convicting people of their sin. Is there a specific sin that he might have in mind? Well, if you look at the context, verse 9 specifically says he's convicting unbelievers. What's, what's an unbeliever's main problem? They don't believe in Jesus. Uh, their unbelief is blinding them from truth. And so he's convicting unbelievers that they need the Savior. <laughs> and their sin is, is not believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. This is the only sin that ultimately, by the way, will, will damn someone to eternity in the lake of fire. It's the only sin that will damn them forever in the lake of fire. In other words, their hip- hypocrisy... Uh, well, sorry, uh, I'm moving ahead too fast here. So, we, we see, first of all, he's convicting people of their sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit is just shattering people's self-righteousness. Shattering our self-righteousness, which, even as, as believers, this is what we need. We need this, too. In, in other words, what I'm trying to say this is, is this, okay? Their hypocrisy is being exposed for what it really is. Jesus is, well, the Holy Spirit just sheds light on who we really are. And number three, the Holy Spirit convicts people of their false judgment of Christ. See, judgment here in context is of the world under Satan's control. He is the prince of the power of the air for the moment. And so its judgments are blind, faulty, evil. The world can't make righteous judgments, but the Holy Spirit does. So we can thank Christ for sending the Holy Spirit for those in, and there's some other reasons we could talk about as well. So why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant? Number seven, it permits access by believers to God. You have access like people long ago never had. They didn't have this. For example, in Hebrews, look what it says, look what it says here in Hebrews four, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, according to Hebrews 4, verse 14, it mentions that Christ has passed through the heavens. Notice there's an S, which makes heaven plural, as in more than one heaven. So what is that all about? What is that talking about? Well, listen to uh, Pastor MacArthur's explanation in the MacArthur Study Bible. I quote, Just as a high priest under the old covenant passed through three areas, to make the atoning sacrifice, Jesus passed through three heavens. So you have the atmosphere, the stellar heaven, and then God's abode. So once on once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. 
That tabernacle was but a limited copy of the heavenly realities. When Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies, having accomplished redemption, the earthly copy was replaced by the reality of heaven itself. End quote. Praise God we have the real thing. Frustrating having copies sometimes, isn't it? They're never as good as the real thing. Never. So why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant? Number eight, it inaugurates the church age and looks forward to Christ's second coming. That's what Jesus was talking about there in Acts 1, verse 7 through 11, which we read earlier. See, our our Lord's ascension into heaven was an important part of His ministry. Uh, Think about it this way. If He hadn't returned to God the Father, what would life be like? Well, He couldn't have sent the promised Holy Spirit then. He said He had to go to send Him. Without the Spirit, there wouldn't be a church age today. After all, uh, the church started... What? Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There is no church without the Holy Spirit. And now we have the head of the church, Jesus himself, working with his people here on earth. He's helping us to accomplish his purposes here on earth. And Acts 1 tells us that the angels gave the believers assurance that Christ would come again. Well, when's that going to happen? I don't know, (laughs) and neither do you. And anybody who claims to know is a fool. Many people try to make dates on that and show themselves to be unwise. Is it talking about a second coming after the tribulation? Is it talking about the second? Is is it talking about what we what we call the rapture? Well, what we do know in, in, in Christ's second coming, we, we just read in Acts 1, right, that he's going to come back to the very place he left. Where was that? The Mount of Olives, to the east of Jerusalem. He's going to come back the same way he left. So regardless of whatever view you take, uh, certainly there, Christians disagree on this matter. When's it going to take place exactly? Christians can agree on this. One of the fundamentals of faith is that Jesus is coming again. We can all agree on that. He's coming again. He can come at any time, any moment. And so this truth over and over in Scripture is supposed to be a motivator. It's supposed to motivate us for faithful service to God. The last significance of Christ's ascension is this. Number nine, it assures believers that their final home will be in heaven with Christ. What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 2? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Rhetorical question, which means it doesn't need an answer because the answer is obvious. The answer is, of course, I'm gone to prepare a place for you. And so Jesus said the Father's house has a room there for every Christian. It's a big house, a very big house, a massive house. Just imagine, my friends, the creator of the entire universe is building a room for you. What's that going to be like? 
Just, just meditate on that. Let me give you, that, there's your homework assignment for the week. It's a fun one to think about. What is my room going to be like after Jesus finishes building it for me? I don't think all the rooms in heaven are going to be the same, do you? I just don't. God is a God of infinite variety. Just look at his creatures he's made. But when he was on earth, Jesus was a carpenter. He obviously loves building things. (laughs) And now he's returned to glory. He is making the best room in the best house that you can possibly imagine. Greater than we can imagine. And the Bible says in Revelation, you can read about the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, that there's this, the capital city of heavens called the New Jerusalem. The the house of God the Father is going to come down from heaven to the new earth. Revelation describes this like coming like a, a bride adorned for her husband. It's hard to imagine anything more beautiful than that. I've experienced it. It's a wonderful thing. But my friends, if if you are a Christian today, the Bible says, by Jesus' assurance himself, not mine, by Jesus himself has assured you that you have a massive room that is waiting inside a massive city, the capital city of heaven, It's too glorious to even put into words. Poor old the Apostle John tried his best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down a few measly words that cannot possibly do it justice. But read those words, John 20 and 21, or sorry, Revelation 20 through 21 there. It's a massive place, a glorious place. And so my friends, we can rejoice together. That because of the work of Jesus Christ, we see here why Christ's ascension is so significant, so important, even for you and for me. He did this. It's true. We have record of it. We had people who saw it. We have apostles who wrote about it and talked about the significance of what it means for you and for me. So now it's our job, our responsibility to, to believe it and to look forward to, to, to this day, to put our faith even now into something that is real, something that will take place. And we can live even now in this reality, standing on this truth that one day we will be with King Jesus, living in glorified bodies, in a sinless, perfected state. No more death, no more sorrow, Revelation says, no more crying, no more bad stuff, whatever that is and looks like. In a massive room, waiting in a glorious city, living with King Jesus for all eternity. doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) May God cause us to believe it and live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these glorious truths. So may we believe them, live them, preach them. We are so thankful you give us a living hope. Not a dead one, but a living hope. Because Christ arose, we too will arise, we will ascend, 
and we will live forever in a, in a glorious place. Thank you for doing this for us, which we could never have done for ourselves. We are so richly blessed. May we know that and believe that. And may we be thankful. And may we worship you now and for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.